Okay, so if you're a guest, um, here's what we've been doing. We, as a church, we preach through books of the Bible, then sometimes in between that we'll do kind of a topical series. So we preached through the book of 1 Corinthians, took about a year, finished it in December. We did a couple of topical series, one on what reconciliation looks like, forgiveness, reconciliation. We did that through November. Uh, then we did um, a series on depression. And uh, today we start a series on the minor prophets. Okay, that's today, the minor prophets. And this may sound ridiculous, but our whole message today is an introduction to the minor prophets. You might be wondering, how can you introduce that much? Well, it's kind of like this. The first church I worked in, there was a lady that lived across the street. Um, we called her Sister Ruth. Back in those days, we called everybody sister and brother. You probably remember that. Some of you grew up maybe in a Baptist church. That's what you called everybody. Um, you know, uh, maybe it might be good to go back to that sometimes. We realize the family of God. But nonetheless, she had a beautiful house. I loved it. Uh, right across the street, she was, uh, she kept the books for the church. And so, um, I go over there, visit with her. But the thing about her house was there was hardly any steel put in the foundation of that house. Um, I get, they was kind of a self-built house and the guy, the people that built it were kind of lay people and didn't really realize that steel's kind of an essential part of a concrete foundation. They poured a lot of concrete, but used really, uh, little rebar. All right. And so although the house looked very good on the outside, and but when you pulled up the carpet and you just walked around the house, there was cracks all over the place. The place did not have a good foundation. So here's what I learned in that. If you don't have a good foundation, you can't build real well. So today, here's my goal in the introduction to this, the minor prophets. I got to give us a good foundation, a good overall foundation of, how to, of building on these 12 books of the minor prophets. Now do this. If you've got your Bible, turn to the very front of your Bible, and I want you to look at the list of all the books of the Bible. This is the kind of the table of contents where typically if someone says a book of the Bible and you don't know where, you kind of try to turn to it real fast, which by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. By the way, nothing wrong with having a digital device, but I wonder sometimes if we've lost a preciousness of not having uh, copies of the Bible in our hand, but maybe I'm just thinking uh, too old school. I want you to look at the last 12 uh, books here. You look at the Old Testament. Does everybody see that when you kind of turn to the front? Do you see the Old Testament? The last 12 books, you see that? It starts with Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Good names if you need a name, okay? Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Y'all see that, right? Those are called the minor prophets. There's 12 of them, okay? Here's, people, people have been asking, why are we going to do the minor prophets? The reason we're going to do the minor prophets is most people don't know them. I mean, I'll, if I were to gauge today, I would gauge that most of us have actually not ever actually read these books of the Bible. If you actually tried to start reading the Bible and you didn't have a consistent habit of that, you probably said, uh, let me do the Gospels first. Or let me do um, maybe uh, 1 Corinthians or something like that. And these books really get left off a lot. So we're going to take a look at them, the Minor Prophets. There's 12 of them. This is going to be a pretty long series, 67 chapters all together in the Minor Prophets. How long would this take us? I do not know. I, I, I do know this, um, 67 chapters. It, it could take us a year. I mean, who knows? I'm in no hurry, um, but I will tell you this. I, I want us to squeeze hard on these, on these old Minor Prophets. Now, 
if you look it back in your table of contents, everybody looking there with me, you'll notice some books before it. You see that book, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Does everybody see that? Those are called the major prophets. There's five major prophets in our kind of the way our Bible is designed. And there's 12 minor prophets. Now, if you had a Hebrew Bible, it actually looks a lot different. They pretty much all the way from first Samuel on, they call almost everything the, the prophets. Um, but the way we kind of designed it here in our kind of modern Protestant Bible, we've got major prophets, minor prophets. Now, the major prophets, we're not really going to talk about those much, but we'll reference those. I may do a, a broad overview sermon of each of those as a part of this series. I don't know. Uh, but I will tell you this. The difference between the major and minor prophets, it's not that, oh, wait a minute. The major prophets are varsity and the minor prophets are JV, okay? They're really, here's why we call them major and minor. We call them major because they're longer. We call them minor because they're shorter. That's really the only difference. Both are equally important. Both are the word of God. Both have something to speak to us. I've discovered this, though. When most people have read the prophets, they've maybe read Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah uh, we preached through Lamentation, so I know you've read that. We preached through that a couple years ago. But most people have not really tackled these books of the Bible, and some of them are small. I plan on next week starting with Obadiah. Obadiah is, I think, 24 verses, okay? That's just one. That's a really minor prophet book, really short, but still important. So I, I, I know this. As I've prayed about where we're going to go next and what we're going to preach next, um, and asking people, it really became apparent most in our congregation didn't have a good working idea of the minor prophets, these 12. You see, the title of the series is going to be Major Messages from the Minor Prophets. And the minor prophets have some great messages for us. And I think it's timely, really timely, what they had to say to Israel, what they had to say to the other nations around Israel, and what God is trying to say to us today. Very important. So I hope I hope that you realize, and by the way, I want you to realize this in this series. This is not going to be an easy series. It, it, it will be a difficult series. We will hear hard truths. We will hear good truths, though. But we will hear gospel truths. We will have truths that will help conform us to his image. It will help us glorify God and not glorify ourselves. So it's going to be really good, but I'm going to tell you, it's not going to be really easy. And, and if you're a guest with this, I want you to know this about our church. Our church is not a seeker-sensitive church. It's a God-sensitive church, right? So sometimes that means we're going to tackle, we're going to tackle hard things like this. And here's why. Because it's in the Bible. If it's in the Bible, it's there for a reason. So we need these minor prophets. We need to look at them. Now here's what I want to do. I want to look at a couple things. And if you've got an outline, does everybody have an outline? Or does everybody have a, a, a note sheet? Raise your hand if you don't. We can get some to you. If you don't have one, I think up front, can someone grab some off the back table and it just hold your hand up? Can someone run back there and just grab those and stick your hand up and someone will come by and hand you an outline? Just stick your hand up high, stick your hand up high, and then they'll, they'll come through until they do. Take your Bible and look at second Peter. I know what you're saying. Wait a minute. That has nothing to do with the minor prophets. Well, I'm building for you a foundation. Go to second Peter. When you look at 2 Peter, I want you to go to chapter 1 of 2 Peter. Why speak? I'm on point number one of this seven-point outline today. Introduction to the minor prophets. Why speak on the minor prophets? Why do this? First, I want you to see that the New Testament actually encourages us to do that. I want you to look at 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. In 2 Peter chapter 1 in verse 16, look at it with me. Peter, his, the apostle Peter says to these, these Christians, 
by extension to us as well. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths that we made known to you, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter says, we saw him. We saw the word made flesh. Verse 17, for when we receive, for he received honor and glory from God the Father, and his voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So he's saying, we saw and heard God speak to him when he got baptized. We saw the glory of God on him. Peter's saying, I saw him at the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw the authenticity of who Jesus was with my own eyes. I'm an eyewitness. I'm an eyewitness to his resurrection as well. Now watch what he says in verse 18. We heard this very voice born from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain, speaking of the transfiguration of Christ. Now look at verse 19. And that we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. (laughs) So get this. Peter's saying, I saw him with my eyes. But let me tell you something. There's still something more sure than what my testimony with what my eyes have said. We have the word of God already among us. At this point, the Old Testament canon was already there. He's saying, we already have a more sure word. And guess what that more sure word in context that he's speaking about? It includes the prophets. It includes the minor prophets. So Peter is saying in this text, I saw Jesus. I'm an eyewitness. This was awesome. But I want to tell you, we already had something awesome before that. We already had something that pointed us to God. We had the prophets. We had the Old Testament. We had the law. We had the writings. But we have a more sure word. Are you with me? You with me on this? Look in verse 18. More fully confirmed to which you do well to what? What does it say, church? To pay attention. He's saying, listen, we already have the word of God. The the minor prophets was already there. He said, pay attention to this. As a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. He says, listen, if your soul is dark and you feel like you're you're in darkness, here's what you do. You got to go back to the word. And the word will shine the light of Christ in your heart. And, And listen. The word of God, the the prophets, even he says the prophetic word, that was already there, already confirmed. He's saying this is, so listen, if you feel like, man, my heart is dark. I'm so far from God right now. My heart is just dark. You know what I tell you? Read the prophets. Read the minor prophets. I mean, you read anywhere, but but even read the minor prophets. He is saying that, that this is already here. It's already confirmed. Even if I didn't give my testimony about my eyewitness testimony of Jesus, you already have something more sure. Isn't that amazing? In your hands, you have something so eternal, so secure. Already, how secure is it? What what kind of books does Jesus quote the most when in his earthly ministry? He, the prophets. Thank you. That's my amen corner there. The prophetic books. Now, Jesus does quote the major prophets as well. We won't look at those as much, but he quotes minor prophets as well. So now look at this. Keep looking with me. Verse 20. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, so that includes the minor prophets, comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spake, spoke from who? Spoke from who? When you read the minor prophets, you're reading God's word. (laughs) Something eternal, something wholly other when you read it. So these 12 books are, are worth it. He says, no prophecy was produced by the will of man, but men spake from God. 
is they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Who's thing people say, like, I want to experience the Holy Spirit. I want to experience him. And they think that the Holy Spirit's just some emotional feeling only. Not, I don't want to strip that. There, there is that. But primarily, how do you experience the Holy Spirit? You get in this book. That's how you experience the Holy Spirit primarily. Now, let me take away experience of the Holy Spirit. But here's the ultimate way you experience the Holy Spirit. So just so you know, like go to a Christian concert, enjoy that, enjoy the singing, all that. Enjoy the emotional feel of God's people singing together. That's a good thing. We'll experience that at the throne of grace. But don't think that's the only way to tap into the Holy Spirit. You want to tap into him? Go to the word. You want to even really tap into him, even in the context here, the prophets. We need the minor prophets. We need to read them. We need to know what God has to say to us. Now do this. Look at 2 Timothy 3. This is just a foundation. I'm trying to, because listen, friends, you're going to need this. Because, man, this is going to be some tough sledding. I'm just being honest with you. <laughs> it's going to be some tough sledding when we start going through these minor prophets. It's going to be good, but it's not going to be an easy journey. It's not going to be one of those, like, make you feel good about yourself kind of journeys. It's not. But it's going to be good. And so as we get into this journey, I, I want you to have a firm like, OK, I need the prophets. I need this. So when we're like when we're, we're like slugging it out through Amos. Right. And and Amos, man, Amos is like on us. You know, like when you get to the book of Amos, whoo, he starts getting into the thing of materialism. We, we don't know nothing about that. Right. Like he's he. God starts getting into the people and how they seem to just really focus on what they can accrue in life. And so, man, he gets all over us. Look in 2 Timothy 3.16. He says this. All scripture. Now, when this is being written, specifically all scripture is pointing towards what was already existent, which was the completed Old Testament. Right? So, part of that Old Testament is the prophets. For our context, it's the minor prophets. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, to know what's right, for reproof, to know what's wrong, for correction, to know how to get right, for training in righteousness, to know how to stay right. All what? All scripture, even the minor prophets, even weird books called Habakkuk, right? And what's I'm just telling, why doesn't anybody use that name, right? No one would have that name. You wouldn't even need a last name if you had Habakkuk, right? I'm waiting, okay? Someone use it. But all scripture. So all scripture, even the minor prophets will help you know what's right, how to get right, how to stay right. That's what it does. All scripture. It's all breathed out by God. It's all profitable. Look at verse 17. That the man of God may be complete, equipped to every good work. So look at this. Complete. And equipped to every good work. So friend, get, get this. Can you be fully equipped if you negate sections of the Bible? Nope, you can't. You can't. That's why we're a church that just doesn't do topical only kind of messages. We have to teach through whole books of the Bible because we're not equipped to be disciple makers. We're not equipped for every good work. If we don't know the, the whole of scripture now, that's going to take me a while. I, I, like 50 years I'll, at this rate, I'll be able to preach through the whole Bible to you, but... You know, all I can do is what I can do right now. All scripture. 
I want you to do this, man. I want a fire in your belly to develop as we go through the minor prophets. I want you to see and love this word in a different way than before. And, and, and listen, reading the gospels of Jesus are important, but they're, they're a lot easier, honestly, than reading the minor prophets. But I'll promise you this. If you'll, if you'll put your feet in the ground and trust what God's word says, you're going to grow in Christ and be better equipped to serve him through the minor prophets. And, and by the way, I'll just tell you this. Just expose this for our own hearts. Here's what we usually do. I know what the Bible says. or Because, I, or, I, I mean, as a pastor, you're kind of like telling people the scriptures all the time. You'll tell people like, this is what the Bible says, that how we should respond right here. And then the next thing, almost 99% of the time I get is, yeah, I know that, but this is how I feel. I know that, but this is how I feel. And, and, and here's why we need the scriptures. Because your feelings are not the right mode of making decisions in life. Now, feelings are good. God gives you feelings to respond to his truth. But we don't make decisions in life based purely off emotion and feeling. We make decisions in life based off of like, what do the scriptures tell me? Where, how are they directing me? Because intrinsically, we're, we're sinners. We're, we're totally fallen, which means that like we, we don't have all this goodness lying within us. We have all this sin and evilness lying within us. And this is what God is doing. He's delivering us from that. And so we need a right guide to help teach us and show us and direct us in the right way. So we need the prophets. We need to read about them. We need to see what they have to say to us. Even get this. When Jesus had resurrected and he was on the Emmaus road, right? You remember what he said to those Emmaus disciples? In Luke 20, you don't have to turn over there. In Luke 24, verse 27, it says this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, including the minor prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Let's get this. Even knowing the minor prophets helps you to know Jesus better. See, a lot of people only want to read the New Testament because they think like, oh, wait a minute. This is where it talks about Jesus' life, and that's what I really need. And I, if I can just read the Gospels, then boom, I'll know what Jesus is like. If you read any part of the Old Testament, you'll know what Jesus is like. It's all pointing towards him. And this is what you're going to, I'm going to love through the minor prophets. I'm, I'm excited to get to show you how it's pointing to the gospel message all through the minor prophets. It's going to help you love your Old Testament, but even make you glory in what you're being shown even in the New Testament. So we're going to study it. Without it, we'll be missing Jesus. Without the minor prophets, we don't really know God the way we should know him. And we're not equipped for righteousness and to make disciples as God's called us to. Okay, so look back at that little list. Everybody see that little index? Oh, that table of content? You have 12 books. And so we'll start next week with Obadiah. Um, it's, it's mostly in chronological order, but not all the way. And so we're going to start off with a couple of the books that... Uh, we're not sure they're dating, but we, I think they're kind of a little bit earlier than Hosea. And we're just going to go chrono, chr- chronology. So if you're wanting to read ahead, read Ob- Obadiah for next week. And then after that, I plan on tackling Joel, then Jonah, then Hosea, Amos, Micah. But you won't go that far ahead. You'll stay with me, right? So or actually, you can read it as far ahead as you want to. Okay. So let's go to point number two. Are you all with me so far? Okay. I'm fired up about it. I don't know if you are, but I am. Maybe catch some of it. If you're not fired up, go go get some leaded coffee. Okay. Number two on that outline. Everybody with me? You see that? I want to talk real quick about, as we study the Minor Prophets, the infinite author of the Minor Prophets. The ultimate infinite. When I say infinite, I mean like immeasurable. This is God. He's infinite. Okay? He can't be measured. He can't be limited. 
Here's what I want you to notice as you read through the minor prophets. You're going to notice a lot of times it refers to God as Lord. But capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Now, sometimes it will say the word Lord and just have a capital L, then a lowercase O-R-D. And usually there's a Hebrew word Elohim that's being used or Adonai. But, but oftentimes, for the most part, when you read the Minor Prophets, a lot of times you're going to see the word capital L-O-R-D. Have you ever seen that in the Old Testament when you're reading and you might be thinking like, why is everything capitalized? Because when that happens, there's a word for God that's being used and that word is Yahweh. Okay? Now, what's interesting about the Minor Prophets, any, even the major prophets, but was reading the studying the Minor Prophets, the actual author of these books it's Yahweh himself. It's, that's why you see L-O-R-D so much in the Old Testament, even in our minor prophets. And that word Yahweh, that word Yahweh is the, the, the family, familial, covenant name of God to his people, Israel. It's God revealing himself to them. It's the personal name of God. Whenever Israel uses that name, that denotes a covenant and relationship that's with them. That's the personal God that we serve. There's nothing wrong with having a personal relationship with God. That is a really good thing. God is so personal that he comes and lives among Israel. So he uses that word Yahweh. But here's what I love about the word Yahweh. The word Yahweh is almost impossible to translate. The literal meaning of Yahweh is this. I am what I am. So it's just kind of like, what is God like? God is so infinite. The only way he, infinite God, could describe himself to us finite man is, I am what I am. (laughs) How boss is that, okay? So it's like, hey, let's describe Nick. Well, Nick's loud. Sometimes if he drank too much coffee, we can tell, okay? Like, what's Nick like? He's easy to describe, you know, kind of pudgy at times, you know. What's God like? He is what he is. (laughs) I mean, how awesome is that? I mean, God... God would blow their minds up if they could even understand completely what he's like. So he says, I am what I am. I am Yahweh. I want you to realize this. When you read the Minor Prophets, you're reading the book of Yahweh. God speaks. That's why it's used. It's a reverent thing. It denotes a personal relationship, which is interesting. So when you read this stuff and you're kind of like, man, that was really rough what that prophet said to these people. And yet it says L, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. I want you to realize God's not trying to be just some thunderbolt God that's just trying to harm them. There is a personal relationship God has with his people. And God, for their good, cannot let them live in sin. For his glory cannot allow that to go on. You you understand me? So even when you see in the midst of the prophets like some really hard things, when you see that capital L-O-R-D, Take heart that God's saying, hey, I'm personal. I'm telling you this so you can repent. I'm telling you this because I want to be back in relationship with you. I'm telling you this because I want the best for you. I'm telling you this because I'm trying to point you to Jesus. I'm telling you this because I'm trying to point you to the kingdom to come. So that's Yahweh. We need to know that because he's the infinite author of the minor prophets. Now, number three. Are y'all still with me? Are you okay? Number three, the earthly authors and the audience of the minor prophets. Here's what I love about the prophets. Hmm. They speak of warnings about, about, man, if you don't repent, this kind of judgment's happening. But the prophets also will say this. 
If you do repent, here's the blessings that are coming, right? And even in the midst of that, they keep pointing forward towards the kingdom to come, okay? Now, sometimes it's wrapped up into Davidic kingdom stuff, but it's always pointing forward even to an eternal kingdom to come. And, and so here's what I love about the prophets. It's actually still pointing to the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the good news that we're sinners and that when we repent and come to Christ, that he restores relationship with us and he gives him himself. That's what the prophets are over and over telling the people. The prophets are saying over and over, he is your God. You are his people and he wants to live among you and dwell among you. Would you repent and trust him, receive his forgiveness and live under his glorious banner? That's the gospel message here still today. This is why we become followers today, to live underneath his banner, to have our sins forgiven, to be restored in right relationship with him, to live uh, underneath his banner of he's our king and Lord now. He's our Yahweh. So we see the gospel all over. Now, when you look at this, the earthly authors, there are 12 books in the minor prophets. Um, each book is named after the prophet that wrote it. So we're looking at 12 authors. And really, when you look at all 12 of the minor prophets, 11 of those are really, um, they, they appear to be, um, I'm sorry, it would be nine of those appear to be more addressed to the southern kingdom. We're going to look at that here in a minute. And then three of them seem to be addressed to the, uh, wait a minute, am I giving you the wrong... I'm trying to count in my head, guys. Don't let me do that. Let me just think a little bit. Twelve prophets. Three of them are speaking to outside nations. Two of them are speaking to the northern kingdom. What's nine minus five right now? No, what's twelve minus five? Seven. <laughs> I've been spoken to Judah, okay? Can't, I can't do math in front of people. So that's how they break down the audience. Um, now, basically, all these minor prophets, they're, they're speaking towards the spiritual adultery that Israel is having. They're worshiping other gods. They're disregarding the law of Moses uh, that was given in Deuteronomy, that was given in Exodus. They're going against it. And so, um, and I kind of told you a while ago, what's interesting, three of the books of the minor prophets are actually speaking towards foreign nations, which means this, Yahweh is not only for Israel, but he's for everybody, right? And, and by the way, that's still the message of God today. God is for Israel. God is for Jews and God's for Gentiles. God is drawing all ethnicities to himself. Everybody needs Jesus. Muslims need Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus. Now, number four, the history of the Old Testament leading up to the divided kingdom. Now you're like, oh my, what are we talking about now? So I want you to do this. Um, would you throw up that timeline first for me? There's a little timeline. It's coming. It will come. There you go. Y'all see that, right? Can you see that okay? Now, this is a little bit of a teaching message, but I want you to have a general scope of what's kind of happening right here, okay? Um. When you get in, start getting into the minor prophets, the first thing I want to do is give you a little bit of history of Israel before we kind of leading up to the minor prophets. Now, look at the very top. You see the very top, 950 to 400? That's B.C. before Christ, okay? I, I had my pointer, my laser pointer in my hand before I left the house. How it didn't come with me, I have no idea. Look underneath that. Do y'all see where it says Egypt, 
Syria, Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. Everybody see that? Those were the ruling powers at the time. So you'll, you'll need to know that here for a minute. Um, look underneath that. Does everybody see north and south kingdoms? Everybody see that? So what happens is um, the kingdom splits. And this is about the time the prophets come on the scene. Israel splits into a northern and southern kingdom. Now I want you to hold that because here's what I want to do. I want to tell you the history of Israel leading up to that split. Okay. Now this is just a quick recap. Number four, the history of your Old Testament leading up to the divided kingdom. The divided kingdom happens when the north and south kingdoms uh, split. Here's what happens. And I'm giving you a broad overview of the Bible leading up to the prophets. The, the, as they come on the scene with the divided kingdom of Israel. Everybody know what the book of Genesis is, right? So here's what you have. I'm just going to give you a sweeping history. You've got Genesis 1 through 2. God creates man and woman to enjoy him, all right? But then we see by Genesis 3, men and women rebel against God and throw all of creation into sin. Genesis 3, we start to see God unfold his plan of redemption to make all things right that Adam made wrong. God makes a gospel promise in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 4 through 11, we see men and women continue this cycle of sin and rebellion against God. Thus, we have the flood and the Tower of Babel. We see Genesis 12 happen. God makes a covenant promise to Abraham. This is, this is God unfolding more of his redemptive plan. This is pointing us towards Christ. And these covenant promises to Abraham include land, descendants, blessings for not only Israel and their own land, but a nation and all the nations of the planet. God repeats this to his sons, Isaac and Jacob, and this passes on to Joseph. As we end Genesis and get in the book of Exodus, now we have, the, we have Joseph is, has gone down at the end of Genesis. He has gone down to Egypt because of a famine. Um, actually, his brother sold him there. But Joseph brings his family, Israel, down into Egypt. And by the time we get to Exodus, for 400 years, Israel has been in Egypt. But now things aren't really great for them. They're now slaves. So when the book of Exodus comes, we see that God now says to them, like, I will deliver you. I will bring you up out of Egypt. And, and the Lord does that. And as they leave Egypt and start to come to the promised land, God makes another covenant with them, a conditional one. Not the one with Abraham was unconditional. The one with, with them at, in the wilderness with Moses was a conditional covenant where God says to them, listen, I brought you out of Egypt. I will be your God. You'll be my people. I will dwell in the midst of you. Okay? That's what God tells them. That's what God says is going to happen. But God says it's conditional. There's this law that I want you to obey. It's called the Ten Commandments. There's this, there's a civil law that I want you to obey. It descends from the Ten Commandments on how your society is to be ordered. There's a ceremonial law that I'm going to give you, which is a sacrificial system that is going to point forward towards Christ and will satisfy the wrath of God in the meantime. And I'm going to give this to you. And if you'll obey me, if you'll live in this, I will be your God. You'll be my people. I'll dwell in the midst of you and you'll enjoy a good life. So he gives that to them in the book of Exodus and they continue on. He even gives them instructions uh, on how to build a tabernacle. And this tabernacle is to be a place where God resides and meets with his people. Because God says, I will be your God. You'll, uh, you'll be my people. I will dwell in your midst. If God's going to dwell in their midst, the infinite God, there has to be somewhere for him to dwell among them. So he designs a tabernacle, gives them instructions, and they build a tabernacle in the midst. By the time we get to Leviticus, we see that God is giving them instructions on how to worship, how to, how to worship this holy God that lives in their midst. How the, 
how the ceremonial law is to work, how the civil law is to work. God's given them instructions on this is what holy living. If I'm going to dwell and live among you, you're going to have to live a holy life in the midst of me being there. Don't drag me into your sin. Because God was told them in the Mosaic Covenant, I will be your God, you'll be my people, and I will dwell among you. But they had to obey the law of Moses. By the time we get to Numbers, the children of Israel are on the precipice of the promised land, but yet they refuse to obey God and take the promised land in unbelief. And for 40 years, they're disciplined and they wander around until the generation dies off. By the time we get to Deuteronomy in the Bible, Israel is back at the border of the promised land. God is restating his covenant mosaic law to them, giving them the terms of the land and basically saying like, I'm giving you this to you because... I'm, I'm your God, you're my people, and I will dwell among you. So God says, this is the way you should live life. So Israel crosses over, um, and we see some really good things happening. We, they come into Joshua, they start really promising, but by the time we get to Judges, what happens? Downward spiral. And the whole time God says, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. But they start refusing to live for him. They, they go into sin morally and theologically. By the time we get to Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, we see David coming on the scene. He tries to restore the proper Mosaic law of worship for Israel. Uh, he wasn't exactly perfect himself. Passes this on to Solomon, who builds a permanent place for them to worship from the tabernacle to the temple. But Solomon perverts himself morally, theologically, helps to establish a worship of pagan idols and gods, and doesn't help Israel much after that. And then what we have is this. After Solomon, the kingdom splits into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. I should have gave you a picture of that. But it splits into the northern called Israel and the southern called Judah. And when this split happens, it, it, it happened because God had said, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, I will dwell among you. But you've got to obey my law. And they wouldn't, and they didn't, and they kept punting. Now, once the kingdom split to a north and south, they still continued on that track. In fact, the northern kingdom, Israel, boy, they went epic with it. You know, if you've ever read your Old Testament and saw like they had a good king, a bad king, a good king, a bad king. When you read Israel, Israel had all bad kings. It's just all bad, right? Judah had mostly bad kings, but had a couple of good kings mixed in there. So their now nations are divided. Israel and Judah, they're divided kingdom. And, and here's what happens. All this happened, that dividing of kingdom, that perversion of Solomon, even David's faults, because they didn't obey God's law. And what happens is this. They're like... They wanted God for how he could save them from Egypt, but they didn't want to surrender their life to him, right? Doesn't that sound familiar how we want to do it today? We want Jesus to be our savior, but we don't want him to be our Lord. So like, but, but here's what God says. I want you to be my people. I'm your God. You're my people. I want to dwell among you. And what we want is this. Yes, Lord, I want you. I want to be your people. I want you as my God. I want you to dwell among us. But God, I want you to dwell among me on my terms. Okay, I, I want to do it my way, not your way. So I'm okay with you being my savior, but not my Lord, right? That was the problem they were having. So as a result of that, God's judgment comes on them. The kingdom is divided. And it's almost like they could have had actually experienced some blessing, but they just continued to go in this cycle of rebellion and sin and idolatry. And, and idolatry is really adultery in the Old Testament. It's, a, it's cheating on God. Now, number five. A history of the divided kingdom. I just want to give you this. So what happens is 
the kingdom divides. Let me show you this. Um, will you go to the very first slide? So everybody see this picture? You see Assyria? That's the Assyria starts to grow as a superpower. In the midst of that, the northern kingdom. Man, I should have given you a northern southern kingdom picture. Y'all know where Israel's at, right, guys? I'm going to use my finger as the pointer. Okay, this would be the split of kind of the northern kingdom. This would be, uh, I'm sorry, this would be the northern kingdom. This would be the southern kingdom. All right, is everybody with me? So what happens is this. The northern kingdom, Israel, perverts, perverts. Ten of the tribes go north. Two of the tribes go south to Judah. They split after Solomon. And that northern kingdom just completely goes rogue. Prophets come in and warn them. We're going to see that with Hosea and Amos. But they don't heed it. Because God wants to be their God and they be his people and he lives among them. They want God for the goodies they can get, but they don't want to surrender their life to him. And what happens is he uses the Assyrian Empire, which now starts to grow and become the strongest empire. And he comes in and the Assyrians conquer the northern kingdom, swallows them up. All right. Now go to the next one. And this happens in 722 B.C. Now look after this. You have the Babylonian Empire. The Assyrian Empire eventually becomes weak and the Babylonian Empire takes over. But the southern kingdom, Judah, starts getting into idolatrous things as well. The prophets warn them, but they ignore the prophets and then God's judgment comes down. Why does God's judgment come down? Because God had said, you'll be my people. I'll be your God and I will dwell among you. They wanted the goodies of him as savior. They didn't want the, they didn't want the surrender of him as Lord. And so they kept punting on God and God said, I'm going to discipline you for this. So now they go into Babylonian captivity. Just so you know, when captivity happens, they strip you from the land. They take you away. They deport you. Okay. And so now the land is, is ravished, not only by Assyrian conquest, but also now with Babylonian conquest, right? Now go to the very last slide. Don't not the next one. We'll look at that one later. The, yeah, there you go. Now do this. Do you see that third line down, North and South Kingdoms? Everybody see that? Shake your head. If you see that? Now I want you to. So what happens is this. You see, man, I wish I had my laser pointer. This feels weird. <laughs> it does look weird, kind of. I like this graph. I'm going to give this to you many times because if you can hold this in your head, you can kind of see the general overview of the minor prophets. So you see the north and south kingdoms are right here, right? Solomon dies. The minor prophets of Obadiah, Joel, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, they're speaking during this time of the north and south kingdom. The the north kingdom is Israel. The south kingdom is Judah. And really, a lot of this is directed towards the northern kingdom, Israel. Like Assyria is going to come conquer you. You see this at the top, Assyria? You can see Assyrian power coming in. These prophets are, are warning of that. Um, now, what happens is this. Israel, the southern kingdom, falls because of Assyria. Now Judah is on the stand. And Judah is being encouraged by Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk to repent. But they, they won't. Okay, actually, Nahum is speaking of foreign nations. So Zephaniah and Habakkuk and Judah is just alone and Judah won't repent. Eventually, Assyria becomes weak and Babylon takes them over. When Babylon takes them over, they come and they take over the southern kingdom. 
right? Now, I want you to understand, in the midst of all that, that's when these minor prophets are writing. By the way, at the same time, these are when some of the major prophets are writing, especially during Judah's southern kingdom is being warned and when they go into exile in Babylon. Everybody with me? I know this is kind of like nerdy stuff, but you need this. Then you see that Judah, that, that the southern kingdom goes into exile under Babylon. And then later, here's what happens. God, by the way, these prophets make promises that God will bring you back to the land. And what happens? Persia takes over Babylon. In Persia, King Cyrus allows a remnant to go back to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls, right? And we see prophets Haggai, Malachi, and Zechariah speaking towards this. Now come back to the land. This is what God wants you to do. We even see the books of like Ezra and Nehemiah talk. Ezra is about going back and building the temple. Nehemiah is about building the walls of Jerusalem, this restoration. Throw that third picture of Assyria. So you saw how big Assyria is? I'm sorry, Persia. You have Assyria, Babylon. This is the last empire, the Persian empire. Boy, they go really big. I mean, they just conquer territory. And by the way, later on, there's a guy named Alexander the Great that just takes that over. So you want to know that in the background, that when these prophets are writing, you've got Assyrian conquest in the background. Go back to that outline. It's on your sheet. You've got the Assyrian you got the Assyrians taking over, Babylon taking over, Persia taking over. These minor prophets are saying, guys, Assyria is going to come get you. Because God said he wants to live among you. You be his people and he dwell among you. But you're punting on him. Assyria is going to come get you. This isn't going to be good for you. Then, then we've got Jeremiah coming in and saying, Babylon's going to come and get you, right? And then God's faithful to his promise. Persia takes over and he starts bringing them back to the land. Which... What a great reminder of the gospel. When, when we can't do right in the end, God is the one doing right all along. We're unfaithful to our promises, but God is always faithful to his promises. It's amazing. Number, number six. Are y'all still awake? Okay. I told you, man, this is difficult stuff. I, 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 hopefully this all makes sense. Number six. Here's the major themes of the minor prophets. This is why for my soul, I think it's so needful for our souls right now. So when you look at the minor prophets, sometimes they're foretelling God's word. Sometimes they're foretelling God's word. Prophets do both. So sometimes they're not, they're predicting the future if they don't repent. But sometimes they're just saying like, this is the way you're supposed to walk according to God's covenant law in Deuteronomy. That according to the Mosaic law, this is how you're to listen. So sometimes prophets are foretelling and foretelling. But I want you to know this. As Western Christians, you're continually going to have that role of a prophet. Because our culture is telling us a different thing from what our scriptures tell us what life is to look like, right? I mean, even our culture is telling us that there's no difference between like a man and a woman. And there's no difference in how you, in sexuality, and you get to decide how things look. And, and, and so I'm telling you, you'll be a prophet just trying to hold to what the scriptures say. And so sometimes you'll find yourself not, I mean, being a fourth teller. So, so here's what happens all through the prophets. Sin happens. People are called to repent. The promise of forgiveness is there. This is the themes constantly through the prophets. An encouragement to enjoy God's blessing. He wants to live among you. And if you'll obey him, you'll, you'll enjoy his blessings. 
And then ultimately, there's always this push to look towards the promise of the coming king. Now, sometimes it looks different for them. Sometimes for them, it looks like restoration back to the land. Sometimes these prophets are pointing towards the ultimate culmination. Sometimes these prophets are actually pointing towards Jesus and his and his actual infancy birth coming. But we see this pointing towards the kingdom that's constantly happening. Sin happens, repent of your sin, experience God's forgiveness, be encouraged to live faithfully for him and look forward towards his return. And by the way, that's kind of what the gospel message is telling us today. You know, like in a minute when we take communion, that's what we're actually reminding ourselves of. When we take communion, we're saying, oh, I'm a sinner. And so I need to remind myself of this. Oh, but wait a minute. Jesus is faithful to forgive me. Let me be reminded of what he did on the cross in my place. Oh, wait a minute. Jesus said I'll be taking this communion with him in eternity. Oh, I'm looking forward towards his return. So that stuck the message of the minor prophets. And that's a message that we still need today. It's a gospel message. You hanging with me on this? You understand? Okay. Number seven. So here's some applications. With my one minute and 40 seconds left. The, the minor prophets, my friends. It will help us recognize the character of God. And I'm excited about that. I think we've lost sometimes what the character of God is like. We're going to see the character of God in all its holiness. And I think this is a problem with us because I think we've lost sight of the holiness of God and what God demands of us, his people. He is our God. We are his people and he dwells among us. But God, God dwells among us through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the sealing of the Holy Spirit in our life. And we think sometimes that it's okay to drag the Holy Spirit around in our sin. And we think that sometimes we think of grace as, oh, That just means my sins are forgiven so I can live any way I want to. Here's what grace is. Grace is, yes, your sins are forgiven. And then you're empowered to say no to sin and yes to him. That's the fullness of what grace looks like, right? Grace helps you not receive the judgment of your sin, but grace also empowers you to live in light of that. Not so Jesus is more than just savior. He's also Lord. You feeling me on this? This is what Israel was trying to do. They were trying to get all the goodies of him being the savior that rescued them from Egypt, but they didn't want him. They don't want to surrender their life to him. And listen to me, please. If you think salvation is just a ticket out of hell into heaven and all you've got is Jesus as your savior and he's not your Lord, you're not saved. You're not. We're not. I mean, I hate to, I know that's what everybody's been telling you. Everybody's been saying just like, pray this prayer. And listen, I, I was, a, I believe in praying the prayer. Don't get me wrong. But the evidence and the authenticity of that prayer in my life is, am I living it out today? Like, am I persevering in the faith? Am I surrendered to him? When sin comes up, am I repenting? Am I hiding this or am I, am I living in light of that he's Lord? Now that doesn't mean I'm perfect, but I've told people over and over, I believe that the Lord saved me at 16. But if tomorrow I throw off everything and go into reckless, abandoned idolatry and never repent of it, I will tell people, it's not that I lost my salvation because you don't lose your salvation. It's that I was never saved to begin with. If he's your savior, he's your Lord. And I'm telling you, we've lost this in the evangelical church. We are, we have, we are, there are so many people dying and going to go to a devil's hell and experience the wrath and judgment of God in hell because all they think that Jesus is is a savior, not a Lord. Like he is both. He is both. Now you might be saying like, man, I I don't know if I can live for him. Well, here's the deal. Come to him as savior. And when you do, you'll at least have a desire for him as Lord. And then he'll work with you on that. Like the, 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 the instruments of grace are all over for that, right? The instruments of grace are fellowship in a body, the word of God, 
taking communion, fellowshipping with people, being discipled. These are all graces God helps you to live underneath the banner of him being Lord. Now, also, I think I'm going to be excited also about this study because it teaches us that God wants obedience to the word. Because the prophets, it's all about Yahweh speaking to his people saying, this is what I want for you, right? And this is what I love. We get to read the minor prophets and see what God wants for us. This is why I love the word. This is why, do this, the next time you want to binge on Netflix, like go and pull your internet out of the house, okay? And grab this book and I guarantee you it'll be a better time by the end. Oh, it's going to be kind of difficult in the beginning and it's not going to be as fun and you might have to take a nap or drink a pot of coffee, right? But like this is going to be so much more soul satisfying to you than like hitting the the, the latest Netflix. I don't even know what's popular right now, right? You know, watching old series of The Office. I don't know. Someone's like deleting Office author history right now. Netflix. I also love the Minor Prophets because here's some application. It's going to help us see the need to repent. Repentance is a change of heart. Results in a change of action. Repentance is the life of a Christian. We are constantly repenting. Not to earn our salvation. We're repenting in light of our salvation. All right. In light of my salvation, I continue to confess sin. In light of my salvation, I continue to want to do the hard heart work that helps to, helps my heart change so that there's action in the outside. And the prophets call for that. I'm also excited about this because in the prophets, as much as they get out and they go like, point the finger at our sin... They also say, come. The Lord says, come. Like the Lord is gracious. Like the Lord doesn't pull you away when you've pulled close to him for sin. Oh, his burden is easy and his yoke is light, my friends. So like this, he, God wants us to come close to him. And the, the prophets promise forgiveness. They promise restoration when repentance is there. Which also is this. I, I like the prophets because... It reminds me of God's forgiveness and it helps me to put my trust in that. Here's what happens with us sometimes. I hear people all the time say this phrase, I can't forgive myself. I just can't forgive myself for what I did. You know, to be honest, friends, that's not in the scriptures. There's no category for forgiving self. That doesn't exist. When someone struggles with this idea of I can't forgive myself, here's what's really happening. They realize they're not a different person yet. They just realize that they're still the same person. They may not be doing the same actions, but at a heart level, they still desire the same sin. And here's what I discover. When people start to experience that change from the inside, that although they're not getting into the sin anymore, but really it's from a heart level, they don't desire it. They desire Jesus more. I find those people no longer struggle with this idea of I haven't forgiven myself. When people say they can't forgive themselves, they're saying that what they're really saying is, I know I'm not a different person. I'm knowing the fruits of repentance aren't there. I know at a desire heart level, nothing's happened yet. I mean, outwardly, I may be begrudgingly submitting to God and submitting to whatever boundaries are there, but inside there's not been a change. So what happens is this. I love the minor prophets because they promise That when Jesus forgives, he forgives, right? And that God can make a change from the inside that results in the outside. And this is even good news for us because even sometimes some of us, we doubt the forgiving hand of what God can do. But the prophets remind the people. Also, it's important because the prophets remind us that God will discipline us. God will discipline us. Not because he's trying to hurt us, because he's trying to help us. God said, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I'll dwell in your midst. If you'll obey my commands... But when they punted on the Ten Commandments, when they punted on God's ceremonial law, when they punted on the civil law, when they punted on the, the Mosaic law altogether, God says, I want to draw you back to myself, and so I'm going to discipline you. 
And as I send you into Assyrian exile, as I send you into Babylonian exile, I want you to realize what happens when you don't come close to me. And I want you to see what can be so good for you when you do. And so I I like the Minor Prophets because it reminds me of this. Out of his loving fatherly hand, he will discipline us. And that's a good thing. Like, listen, it would be so bad for my kids to just let them do whatever they want, right? I mean, if I, if, I let, if I let Cadence do whatever she wanted, it would be gummy bears every meal, right? It'd be suckers and lollipops and an endless stream of Moana. That wouldn't be good for her, okay? If y'all know what Moana is, just, you'll, you will someday. And here's the last thing that I love about the Minor Prophets. The minor prophets are constantly pointing forward towards the kingdom to come. They're constantly pointing forward to like the Lord. Sometimes it's the Lord's going to bring you back to the land. Sometimes they're pointing forward to like, here's a promise of the Messiah. Sometimes they're they're always pointing forward towards the kingdom to come, which is good for my soul. So this morning, this is a good reason for us to take communion. I want to start off this series taking communion this morning. Because the, the minor prophets, they inaugurate this idea of thinking about the character of God. When you take communion, you're thinking about a holy God that poured out his wrath on his son because of the heinousness of our sin and the graciousness of his goodness. So we're seeing God's holiness and his grace. We're seeing sin, judgment, and, and him pouring out his wrath. And we see like the character of God in that. Take, communion is a good time to take because when we look at the prophets, we see that God wants obedience and taking communion is an obedient factor. We see when we look at the prophets, this idea of repenting and God drawing us close in. When you take communion, it's another time in your life to look at your life and to repent and refresh your soul anew. When we take communion, it, it, this is a good time because when the church in Corinth was taking communion... He had basically said like some of them were being disciplined because they were taking it unworthily. They were taking it like like the rich were taking it because and not wanting to share their resources with the poor. They had unreconciliation and they had a hard heart towards God. And so it was a disciplinary thing. And so communion's good because if you're coming to church and you're taking communion, it's a good reminder to say like, hey, the Lord is a loving father who will discipline me. Like I want to get things back in line. It's a good time to confess. Are you with me? So communion is a good thing to take as we start this kind of uh, this this study. And lastly, communion is a great thing to take starting this study. Because when you take communion, you're pointing forward to the day that you'll be taking it with Jesus someday. And as you read and study the minor prophets all over, there's this idea of not only the messianic kingdom of Jesus, but the kingdom to come and that God will someday take away all the curse of sin in a way that you'll never struggle with it again. Life will be exactly as it always should be. You will be glorifying him and serving him and loving him. You will experience no pain, no more broken relationships, no more struggle with sin. Everything will be exactly as it always should be. And this is why communion is a good time to take as we Think of the minor prophets. They're always pointing forward towards another day when everything will be right, when God will bring his kingdom. And this is what we do when we take communion. You're with me on that? All right, so let's do this. Would you stand to your feet? Worship team, you can make your way up here. We're going to sing a song. And then in the middle of that song, we're going to take communion together. And then, and then we'll sing a little bit more and then we'll be dismissed. Okay? So there you have it. Introduction. To the minor prophets, you're completely ready. Can I pray with you? Lord, thank you.
We have a hard study to do in this. But this is going to be so good for our soul. Lord, there's so many sins in our life that in light of the work of the cross, we need to deal with them seriously. Many of us, all of us, in light of the work of the cross, some of us got to start believing that you can actually give us grace to say no to sin and yes to you. Some of us in the light of the work of the cross need to start believing that you actually do forgive us. Some of us in the light of the work of the cross need to remember that this life is just a vapor and that everything that happens, you're pointing us forward to glory someday. And every pain, every hurt is to loosen our grip on this life that we just want to we just want to gather more stuff and gather more joy solely in what's happening here. But you're loosening us. The prophets will point us towards a better day. Would you allow us at this time as we sing to allow us to confess our sin to you, to look where there's unreconciliation so that we can take this worthily. It's in your name we ask this. Amen.